Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, the academic dean of Fuller Seminary's Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. Our topic this season is race and grace, critical race theory and Asian American Christianity. The season is made up of a series of conversations that I'm having with my friend and neighbor, Dr. Alexander John professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University. In this episode, we're going to talk about critical race theory in our schools. Are we ready for this episode, Alex? I can't wait. I mean, this is what you do, right? You, you, you are in, in higher education and you teach critical race theory as part of what you do. So is critical race theory taught in our schools? I mean, people are protesting, they're actually passing laws around the country. Because they're saying they don't want it taught. What's happening here? Yeah, I'm in higher education. So my primary focus is post-secondary education, right? After high school, uh, I teach in a PhD program at APU. And my PhD education was at the University of Southern California back in the 90s is when it was just starting to become a more recognized theoretical framework that we talked about what the frameworks are in previous episodes, but we were just wrapping our heads around how to challenge long-held assumptions of uncritical theories of race in higher education and in colleges and universities. Hmm. All right. I do that as the setup. And then, yes, you see it in the news. Boy, one of the most dangerous positions these days is to be an individual school board member in some, you know, any given yeah. local school. My goodness. I mean, mask, no mask, critical race theory, uncritical race theory. I mean, you know, we're, it must be very difficult, but they, you know, and they don't pay any money for some of these roles. So it's very difficult for a lot of uh, uh, parents and uh, school board members, I'm sure. At that higher level, when you teach critical race theory, because it's, it's a theoretical framework, we handle it like every other theoretical framework. You talk about its benefits, its strengths, its weaknesses, because obviously there are other approaches to thinking about race as well. That's right. I could use another example of something like physics, right? There are, in graduate education, people are teaching string theory and theoretical physics and whatnot. But in high school or even in earlier primary and middle schools, they're teaching physics. It's rooted perhaps in some theory and concepts, of course, but that's not the level that they're teaching it. And so no, critical race theory is not being taught in the K-12 school system. Critical race theory is originated by critical race theorists and critical legal scholars. Rarely is that being taught in school. now. Are they talking about racism in school and talking about systems that privilege some at the exclusion of others? Absolutely. But are people who are resistant to that calling it critical race theory? But I wonder if people are just resistant to hearing that there's still racism in society and in our history books. That's the problem. And what they really mean is, can we not teach about racism in our schools? 
Can we not teach about racist policies in school? Can we whitewash our curriculum for K-12? And I have more to say about that. The idea is the fact that it's all gone and you're calling people racist because everybody's thinking about it purely from an individualistic perspective. And so that you're, you're pointing fingers at specific people. And the fact that if you talk about it, I mean, we talked about it in other episodes as well, that if you talk about it, then it's, it's being divisive, right? So I, that's part of the problem. If you think about the listener who might be hearing this and saying, oh yeah, I, geez, it is kind of hard to make sense of what's going on. When was the first time you were introduced to concepts about race and racism that just rock your world, right? And then the, the response usually is, how come I never learned about this in school? How come nobody told me about Christopher Columbus not discovering America, that his fetishization of India and coming to North America and calling the native peoples and the first nations here are calling them Indians because he's, he thought he was in India. How come we were taught the names of the ships that were that came over to the quote unquote new lands, but we don't know the names of the tribes that were decimated by disease and um, by colonizers, right? People are hearing this and saying, wait, how come I didn't learn this? Why am I getting remedial education in my master's degree? Or I'm learning it now in graduate school, right? That's the problem because the way education was formulated and perpetuated, it was through an uncritical lens, a whitewashed lens of history. Yeah, you, you mentioned this thing, this idea of kind of making this connection for yourself. In a previous episode, you talked about your professional growth and development and making sense of this thing and why you've written three books on whiteness. But personally, for your own life, like how did it come about? And when you said, oh my gosh, the structure racism is real. Like I get it now. Like I, it's making sense to me because I mean, there's definitely points in my life where I start saying, oh my gosh, this, this race thing is real. Like, like light bulb went over my head. I remember you know, going home and thinking this is like going to mess with me because I realized I can't think about the world same and I can share about that, but I would love to hear your story in terms of, you know, in a very personal way, not just academically, but for yourself as an Asian American Christian. I know a lot of Asian American scholars will talk about the tragedy of someone like uh, Vincent Chin. And a lot of people who don't study Asian American history won't know who Vincent Chin was. For me, Daniel, it's deeply personal in the sense that I didn't know who Vincent Chin was until the day after he died, that my new nickname became Vincent. Oh my God. And everyone used that occasion to try to kick my ass. I mean, this is a fundamental experience that I had. And then later on, it was when uh, Ray Mancini killed Dooku Kim in a boxing match, Hmm. right? Uh, Then my new nickname became Dooku Kim (laughs) and everyone started beating me up because of that, right? So my my childhood and my racialization and bullying was rooted in these, at the time, uh, nationally recognized events. Hmm. But what was uncritical in that was people who, who murdered him, who are, by the way, got uh, their wrists slapped and, and walked away, they thought it was Japanese, right? It was mm. at the time of the Japanese automotive industry really taking 
root and um, plant in Michigan struggling and American car manufacturers being poorly made and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was this xenophobic approach to Japanese and Japanese products. And it was really unfortunate with someone like Vincent Chin, of course, in, you know, in the boxer, Dooku Kim. Yeah, these are all challenges for me as I think about um, how I've deeply personalized. And I was forced to say, who the hell is Vincent Chin? And why am I getting into fights over this guy? So I had to learn and it was a tragic story. Hmm. And so I had no way to process that story and my own um, uh, victimization as a uh, consequence of it. Yeah, isn't it true the fact that when we get more language, it almost as though something happens. We have all these events in our lives, all these all this, uh, experiences. And we have no language at, at the time to articulate what's happening because often racism is defined in such a narrow way, like anti-blackness, which of, of course, I think you and I would agree, it's incredibly important, but it doesn't include Asian anti-Asian racism. So when something happens, we're like, what is that? Something weird is happening. And often we can kind of uh, pathologize ourselves. Well, something must be wrong with me. I don't want to be a part of what it is. You know, uh, I, don't right. want to, I don't want this identity for myself. And, and this idea of language, I think, is so, is so important. It is. And it's the lack of intentionality to tell the whole story. When I think of the Japanese-American experience um, or any sort of relationship with Japanese from a dominant white lens, and it's textbooks and teachers and everyone, it's the, the same story. This idea that most of our stories when it comes to a Japanese-American is Pearl Harbor. Hmm. That's it, full stop. No one talks about the, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the millions who died and the aftermath of the fallout, that's never discussed. Internment is rarely discussed. And when it is discussed, it's a very lighthearted treatment, right? right? right. Uh, the, the narratives are fascinating uh, to say that, yeah, they chose to go into these spaces really, really problematic when we then talk about the Holocaust in Germany and they should be equal comparisons, but they're not. Mm. You know, for myself as a, as a theologian and as a, as a minister, I remember thinking when I was younger, maybe like in my theological training, I thought the problem of Asian American Christianity was purely cultural. Like we said, we have these toxic kind of uh, pagan religion, cultural influences. So we talk about Confucianism or shamanism or Buddhism. And so I spent actually about, you know, five years or whatever, or 10, 10 years focusing on that. And I didn't think that race was important. I, I think I had this really profound experience when I became, you know, because I've been a fuller for what, I guess now almost uh, 15 years. And early on, when I became the coordinator of the Asian American, early iteration of Asian American program, I was thinking like, why do I not like this job? Because professionally on campus, I was like an official Asian American. And I realized every meeting I would walk into, I would walk away from it thinking that was painful. And after a while, it became really, really painful. Like after like a couple of years of it, I had held that position for three years. And then, you know, I, like, I've been kind of an official Asian American professional Asian American at Fuller for the last almost what 12 years or so. But earlier on, I found it really painful because I realized I couldn't set aside my Asian Americanness that I've been doing all my life. And then later on, when I learned the language of microaggressions, I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, I am experiencing microaggressions. And because it's part of my Asian American is part of my professional identity, 
I can't set it aside. I'm stuck with it. It's almost as though like I have to present myself as an Asian American. And I realize I wasn't doing that before. That's right. So my own childhood experience of just ignorance from lots of friends and friends, families and teachers to say, so what's Korean? Mm. It's not Chinese. It's not Japanese. And at an early age, I then became the expert of my own culture and history, which was problematic for, you know, an adolescent as if I knew what was going on. I just wanted to play Atari like everybody (laughs) else. Right. Um, But so it's fascinating that that then became my dominant identity. And when I did explain what it means to be Korean, no, there's North and South, but we're not from the North, we're from the South, at times an innocent question that gets answered innocently, but the response was always this exoticization, Mm. right? This fascinating culture that I've now uh, introduced to my listener. And oftentimes they're my teachers or classmates. And so that's interesting. That just becomes a default. So when you say that you're paid now to be professionally ethnic, so am I. But we've been doing this since childhood, right? Mm -hmm. If we grew up in dominant white spaces, uh, we just happen to now get to do this professionally to some degree. Yeah. I think when it really finally hit home for me, was theologian Jung Lee talks about the fact that in terms of mar- his book called Marginality, a theology book, and he talks about the fact that you experience marginality significantly more, right? You know, uh, in, in, a, in a palpable way when you're closer to power, centers of power in a sense, right? I think I didn't really understand structural racism as much when I was a student or even when I was a staff. I think when I became a professor and when I became an upper like administrator and I was so much closer to power, I realized, wow, there actually is so much structural racism. Because, I mean, the weird thing is that Fuller is actually generally a progressive place. So people are all nice. It's not like they're intending it. They're generally very nice people. They're actually trying to be very considerate. But there was something, you know, structural. There was something, a spirit, like in a sense, right? There was happening. That was happening beyond people. And I remember having a conversation with one of my Black female professor colleagues. And she was talking about the fact that this is really the reality. There's a, there's a deeply structural uh, racism that's actually there. And I told her, you know, if you've shared this with me even a couple of years before, I would have in my racist mind said, oh, here's a typical angry black woman. Because obviously it's not real. But I, I told her this and I said, you know what? I get it now. Because I'm, I'm so much more close to power now. And I see from a different perspective. I just see what's happening. It was like a profound, like a staggering moment. Because I came home thinking, that is overwhelming. If that's what's happening in powers of principalities of our institution, that is an overwhelming idea. That's right. That's good. I think I'm still, and perhaps forever, will be on the road to recovery of my own miseducation in public school growing up in Northern California, right? Uh, The erasure of Asian American history and stories, the stories that do get told, you're right, when you talk about history and structural racism, why was it, for example, at least in my, my own story of Korean American immigration, which is the shortest perhaps among uh, other East Asian immigration stories, why was it that only the educated and the elite were allowed to come to the United States. Especially right? early on, As right? international students. Yeah, early on in the, in the 70s and, and before 
uh, immigration laws changed and never talked about the stories behind all the civil rights activists that led to uh, civil rights legislation, including um, the loosening up of um, immigration for uh, folks in Asia. Mm. Never the intent, we were never the intended audience. But that's the story that gets erased. And then what you have are generations of, in this case, Korean Americans, whose children of international students and scholars, you know, some did well academically. Well, this is the Time Magazine story of the, you know, the cover story of uh, whiz kids right, and right. all these East Asian kids. And this is when I was in high school, right? The expectation, the assumption was they're all whiz kids, right? It's again, the model minority stereotype that got reinforced, but was never critically examined in, in the textbooks. Right. And this whole point, once again, is the fact that when you talk about whiz kids, you're talking about, you're erasing structures, you're erasing policies, you're erasing history and talking purely about culture, right? This is your culture. This is who you are. Like, you know, sometimes we talk about black people in that way. We don't talk about history of redlining. We don't talk about systemic racism. We say, oh, culturally, they must not be, you know, educated. Or culturally, they must not like these things. Culturally, they might be violent or whatever, right? Genetically or whatever. In the same way, we do the same thing for Asian Americans. Culturally, we must just be all smart. That's right. That's right. And then in the United States, a history of Christianity among Asian American communities is very, very long. But the assumption is that they are somehow otherworldly, uh, Buddhist or Shinto or Confucianism, uh, you know, that uh, is more associated with Asian Americans than Christianity. Uh, there's a long history there as well. But to say, you know, people over find it remarkable that you'd find Asian Americans who are like third generation Christian in the United States. It just doesn't compute with the dominant narrative that's being told. So this is true for public education, and it's especially true in Christian education. This idea of critical race theory uh, in schools, and again, you've heard me say this before, the problem is we're teaching uncritical theories about race in schools, especially in Christian schools. Yeah, because people's critique is saying, why are we revising history, right? This, I, this critique of re revisionist history. Why are you not telling the truth? Why are you revising it with some kind of an ideology? Why don't we tell what it's originally truthful is? Why do you have some strange ideology to twist it in your revisionist history? That's, I think, what the critique is, right? Yeah, my, my immediate retort is to ask them to flip the script. I said, hold on. Now, I didn't come from a Western European background, but I am required, along with all my other Asian American classmates, were required to learn European history. And it was so dominant that it was called world history. It wasn't even like <laughs> Western European. You had the gall to refer to your history as world history. Um, and it became common as curriculum, right? It became central to the curriculum. And then when we talk about Asian American history or philosophy, all of a sudden that became an elective. Even if you had the electives, it wasn't even offered, right? Um, growing up in the 80s, it was French, Spanish, German. No Asian languages hmm. uh, were offered because we had no one to teach it, but it was never the intent 
to have these languages being taught. And so, you know, why would you recruit for it? Why would you raise money for these types of curricular changes? I think the other side of the story of revisionist history, everything turns out everything is revisionist history. If history is actually flat and you could tell the entire story of multiple perspectives, why is it that we chose, educators chose, a Western Eurocentric white dominant approach to history, right? Mm. That was a revisionist decision that everybody else was subsumed under, right? right. So I challenge the very premise of the question to say, oh, you're talking about African-American history, Chicano studies, Asian-American history, uh, that's revisionist. I said, no, it's always been revisionist. It's the dominant white Europe, Eurocentric history that was selected as canon, as the standard, as universal. That was the original problem. Yeah, and this is kind of technical, but we want to spend some time on this thing because this is really an important point that history, the whole discipline is historiography is how history is told. That it's not, his, I mean, there's no matter of fact, one way of telling history. That actually history is already revised. It's told because you can't include every single fact. The question is, how do you organize information? How do you revise? How do you organize? How do you kind of tell a particular narrative? And often those who are in positions of dominance end up organizing it in a way that makes sense for them, that actually makes them the protagonist in, those, in, in the narrative. That's right. Yeah. Why we're still teaching Rudyard Kipling and uh, J.D. Salinger and lots of other what we call the great books, right? The classics. Who got to determine and close the door to say these are the classics that every well-educated, liberally-minded scholar should know. I mean, again, I want to challenge the very premise of that curricular decision, right? It's hugely problematic. We're still using the same great books uh, curriculum in the higher education realms. Some institutions refer to those within the honors college. Mm. And that's true at my own institution. So, you know, no problem throwing a little shade at APU. <laughs> the honors college is basically uh, white dominant Eurocentric thinkers. Yeah. Right? Maybe they'll throw in a little James Baldwin, maybe Sun Tzu, but really it's a white Western canon that somehow becomes a tantamount to classics. Right. And, and this idea of what defines excellence, what, what defines greatness. You know, it reminds me of a critical race theory concept called pure white approval. I've used it a lot because I think it's so interesting that Asian Americans sometimes need white people to tell us what's great, even about Asian American stuff, to say, oh, yes, that's good. Like, you know, because if, if the white people don't really think it's good, will we recognize for ourselves the fact that it's good, right? This idea of white peer approval has been one of the more interesting uh, concepts. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit in terms of what that means and how it functions? Yeah, the, the, the white peer approval is like the U.S. News and World Report version of like the top 10 best school <laughs> ranking. You know, yeah. it's just all fish wrap. That stuff is so fake. It's manufactured so they can sell magazines. But people, even educators, buy it hook, line, and sinker. And so the equivalent of that is to say that we're seeking white approval and white adjacency 
that benefits us economically, socially, culturally, and in other ways. Again, we need to recognize that first. We have to recognize it before we can even dismantle it in systems that are in place and dismantle it in our own souls. I think that's part of the, the fundamental problem is who are we looking for affirmation, right? And as a Christian, this is critical. Is our affirmation from our Savior and our Savior alone? Yes and amen. I hope so. If it is affirmation of people, and that's a struggle, is it mostly white people? Mm. Do we find more validation and affirmation when a white person acknowledges my food and my culture, authors that I like, when people come up modern day right now, BTS is very popular. I love BTS. I love kimchi. And I say, you know, I don't listen to BTS. Actually, kimchi leads to BTS for me. If you can understand <laughs> that, then you'll understand what I'm saying. If you don't understand that, then don't come at me with the superficial level of your satisfaction. I don't find satisfaction in that today, but I sure would have craved any sort of acknowledgement or recognition when I was a young man, as a child, as a student, absolutely. If anybody recognized anything about my culture, I was so hungry and thirsty for affirmation from white people that I would take anything, even if it was negative. <laughs> this reminds me of a story because uh, this is something that happened. One of my students said, one of our students, which was my student, but she said, hey, you know what? This Asian American professor is so good, even though white students say she's good. And I was like, what does that mean? Right? What does that mean? So, and I actually have heard this as well. Like uh, people have said, oh, you know what? This Asian American pastor is able to lead able to lead a multi-ethnic ministry even though white people come and i was like what does that mean even though white people come right if all asian american come is it less than because that's actually what the perception is right even though white people come and it's almost as though you need that approval you need that approval to be like we're legitimate right what's legit actually is defined by can white people come to your thing and say this is something we enjoy what if it's just something for us and it's not catered to them right that's right. Fundamentally rooted in white supremacy that it's bought into not just by white people, but black, indigenous and other people of color. Right. That's how insidious white supremacy is. And again, it's important to make the distinction. We're not talking about white people. We're talking about white dominant systems and ideology. And that's what you know, critical race theory also tries to recognize and address. But you're absolutely right. Those are passing comments and thoughts that reveal a lot about ideology. If a pastor, an Asian American pastor is able to lead uh, white congregation members, they say, well, then you've truly made it. Even other Asian American pastors might say, oh, that's, you know, my friend Owen Lee, that's his confession that he, mm. he just longed for the approval of white members. And he said, I know I've made it if I have white congregation members who can yeah. sit under my teaching. And yeah. he gave this great analogy. He goes, that's the NBA, right? That's big time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. a Korean pastor working in a Korean church or an English speaking ministry in a Korean church, who can't do that? That's like JV. Maybe Asian American church, that's varsity, maybe yeah. college ball. But yeah. if you get white people under you, uh, then you know that you've truly made it. And it's so problematic. And I love the way that he's able to break that down and confess it himself and his own story. And everybody's listening to that. And they're nodding and they're like, wow, you put words to mm. feelings that I've had. Jay Caspian Kang did this interview with Stephen Yoon. 
right? And it was a fascinating article, but they got into this one section about like dating white women. And they say, yeah, you know, you made it. Asian can date a white girl and you know, you made it. Who can't date another person from your own race? It's not unique to the Asian American community. And I, I say that in somewhat with in jest, but it does reveal something about our own ideology. Yeah. And what we hold, what's held us captive in terms of what is accepted and what's successful. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard uh, there's one student who basically had a white girlfriend and he said, all of his friends said, oh my gosh, you're living the dream. You're living the dream, right? This is ideal, right? You've made it in a sense. I think, or <laughs> another pastor who basically confessed and said, he said this idea of forming a multicultural church as a Korean American, he said just one week, there was a white family that entered the door and there was this Korean international student. And he said in his mind, he realized he was valuing the white family. He needed them, but that Korean international student, he definitely didn't want them. It was like, he was worthless. He's like, I don't want that person. It'll make us more fobby, which is what I don't want. I want it to be acceptable. I want to be respectable, right? I mean, there's a third example of where, you know, this pastor who's serving in a white mega church, you know, tells a group of immigrant pastors and saying, you know, you are, I've learned from the best. So let me tell you what I think is amazing about, you know, why white people are all creative and everything else and why, you know, immigrant churches have such a long way to go in such a condescending way. I remember sitting in a room thinking to myself, what gives you that condescension to think that you've made it now, right? An example that happened just this past summer within my denominational meetings, um, General Assembly, it's public, so I can say his name, um, Joseph Piper, who was a former president of Greenville Seminary, I think he still holds emeritus status, very well respected in my denomination by some. And, uh, you know, he had made a passing comment, um, this is in light of the anti-Asian hate, and we had a, an overture that was brought up by a Korean language presbytery, which was um, that was encouraging in and of itself. But the comment uh, was in response to one of the requests in the proposal was to have Korean style prayer for the entire denomination. Now, this is a white Southern denomination to have a, a moment of confession and repentance and mourning together and then pray with Korean style prayer. Right, Tong Song Gido, right? Yeah. And um, this dude went up and said, you know, oh, if you're not familiar with this, uh, what, what we're referring to is we all pray together and it's chaotic and it's unbiblical. <laughs> wow, it's brutal. Okay, so there's many different ways we can go with it. Obviously, many Korean Americans and people who are non-Asian were very upset about that comment. I was filled with emotion, but it was mostly sadness. And mm. it was sadness for him because he's that unaware of sort of deep-seated uh, white normativity in his own life that he equates sort of a white Western way of praying as being tantamount with the only biblical way of praying. Hmm. But what was more problematic, he was a seminary professor and uh, administrator and president. Imagine the impact that he's had for 30, 40 years or however long he's been involved in education. That type of commentary, that kind of mentality and ideology passed down to seminary students who eventually become pastors of churches, hmm. who impact the members who have children and grandchildren 
and even other Asian Americans who might be in that space and they revere their professor for his theological knowledge (laughs) and they hear something like that and they are what? Rather than rejecting a comment as being racist, they embrace it and they say, you're right. And they were filled with self-hate. And how many Korean Americans do I know who have heard something like that and have actually expressed it themselves? They, they reject Korean style prayer as well because they say, oh, it must be chaotic and unbiblical because I heard an old white pastor, an old white theologian educator say that. Yeah. And it's more valid than hearing a Korean educator and a theologian say it. That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so deeply rooted, right? Because we grew up with this thing and we are formed, we're racially formed through our education, through our media, to value what is beautiful, to value what is good, uh, what is worthy. It's really just, it's something that kind of causes us to a profound kind of uh, self-reflection, I think. Well, changing the topic a little bit, uh, in thinking about Christian history, because we, we're talking about how we, you know, revisionist history and how we think about all this and uh, how we, you know, thinking about uh, critical race theory being taught at schools and things like that. But we, we talked about the importance of thinking and rethinking history, right? And in Christian history, I mean, you pointed this out in one of your books, is the fact that we have a long history of uh, whitewashing Christian history, right? We have a particular way of saying this is history and why we need to revise our history because we always highlight all the hero moments and we say oh the other people that's not real history in a sense that's right so much gets documented technology is a part of this and then it's the power and the dominance of stories that are told i was doing some research on one of my books white jesus and trying to understand the missionary practices and the ideology behind white western missionaries uh, from north america and europe who went to korea you know, in the 1800s. And it was fascinating because the imagery, the, the photos that were captured, and these are the earliest images that are, are actually enduring images of what mission life might have been. And I mean, it's very subtle, maybe not so subtle, but it's the white missionary in the center, right? Doing all the leading and the instruction and everybody else just following along. And as I start reading some of these stories of letters back home. I mean, it's fascinating. It lovingly referring to people as somewhat subhuman, right? I mean, the way that they describe them. (laughs) Lovingly, right? Yes, lovingly. I mean, oh, this is why they need Jesus because they have no, children run around naked in the streets. Boy, they need Jesus. You know, all this kind of stuff. It is fundamentally problematic. And I love missions. I think it's important to to proselytize and share our faith. But at the same time, we can take a critical examination of culture being embedded in missionary practice. And that's still going on today. You know, that point about missionaries, one of my colleagues, well, a number of my colleagues, uh, Kirsten Kim and uh, Sebastian Kim, they, they both study Korean Christian history. And they point out the fact that, wait a minute, the dominant people who basically spread the gospel in Korea were Koreans, right? But we don't think about that. Or I was talking to my colleague, uh, Joe Abram, Abraham, who basically is from uh, South India. And he was talking about the fact that people know about, you know, William Carey and all these Western missionaries. But he's like, what about all the Indian missionaries, right? Because they are the ones who, who are predominantly doing the work. Once again narration of history 
who is the protagonist, who falls into the background, who are just the helpers, who are anonymous. That's part of the idea. I, I was talking about this book that's been really, really significant, very uh, powerful uh, and influential, uh, Silencing the Past by Michel Rolf uh, Treau, and talking about the fact that there actually is power involved in the production of history. And he talks about the fact that silence can, or an erasure can enter in four moments, right? Four different crucial moments. It can be when facts are being created, right? When, when you're th- making other sources, when all the facts are being assembled, when they are being retrieved, and when they're reflecting back, right? In retrospective significance. I mean, in multiple levels, we can erase history. We can make certain people and narratives invisible and call that history and say that's being objective. I mean, the idea of objectivity is really what the problem we're talking about here, right? Absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, You know, we need to recognize the subjective nature of those in positions of power. So, you know, a, a simple example, since we're talking about education, missionary schools that are created have been created in English, right? So what's the significance of having a school in another country that's a Christian school Hmm. uh, and the language of instruction and the teaching is in English. Why? Right. What was it that made English language and American culture so much more biblical or like God centered? I want to highlight two things. One is it's the educators inability to speak the language, right. Of that nation. And that's why everything is done in English. And the second is it's a fundamental dismissal and a disrespect of the people who are in that country who know the language and know the culture. Why wouldn't they become the educators? And oftentimes what I hear is, well, we'll start it in English and then eventually we can transit. Well, why transition it twice if you're gonna start it? Start it from the beginning in a language that you may be unfamiliar with, but others can benefit. I think at its core, we really see Western culture and English language and Western ideology as being tantamount to being biblical. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really convicting. A lot of Christian missionary organizations, ministries are also problematic in that when we say, here's a ministry that we have, and we're also going to do this in Brazil, and, and we're going <laughs> to translate it in Portuguese, yeah. we're going to translate it into, into Mandarin Chinese. It's always just one direction, as if there's no great thought philosophy and theology coming from these other countries, right? From the global South or from other majority worlds. And we think it's only what we possess that we're going to pass on to others. That's our great contribution. It's hubris. And it's something that we should recognize. What you're saying that uh, that, you're saying that uh, purpose-driven life shouldn't be uh, universal. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, it could be translated, but are there other books, translated books, are there other theologians who have written the same version of that that ought to be translated into English? Mm. We rarely think that way. Yeah, I mean, how we talked about previously about a continual repentance and a continual conversion that we need to have. It seems like not only if our own understanding of the world, we need to have uh, that way of thinking about education altogether, right? That we need a conversion, we need a continual repentance 
yeah. and reflection upon how we think about history, how we think about education, and that these things have to change as we learn better. That you know. That's right. Uh, this is the the Neil deGrasse Tyson quote, which I love, and this is appropriate for Christian educators. The great challenge of life is knowing enough to think you're right, but not knowing enough to know you are wrong. It's fascinating for us to think, of course, we had good intentions. We've talked about that in a previous episode. We have good intentions, but is there an opportunity for us to explore perhaps our fundamental epistemological assumptions were wrong? Hmm. One final example that comes to mind that you had asked earlier about, you know, my own personal educational experiences. And you see this dominant, uh, even linguistic culture when it's a name that's difficult to pronounce in English for, or for English speakers to pronounce, either it's a, a Korean, Chinese, uh, Indonesian name. And what do we do? We anglicize it. We say, oh, Tongbam, Kim Tongbam, I can't pronounce that. Can I, can, I'm going to call you Doug. And you just rename people. You completely erase their, their identity. And so, you know, especially for young children in an elementary school, they may not have the agency to fight back, to push back. And then the level of respect that they have for the educators to say, no, we're not doing that. I'm going to go with the name that my family gave me and it has significance. You need to learn how to pronounce it and pronounce it correctly. I think that's a fundamental issue. It's a very, very superficial issue, but it speaks a lot to a white normative English normative approach of hegemony. Yeah. As Christians, we need to have obviously our faith in a God that is uh, over all universe. We absolutely believe that faith in Christ. What does it mean to distinguish our faith in Christ and our faith in a universal God from the church that is fallible, that is continue growing ourselves that need that epistemological humility. Can we have deep trust in God and also have epistemological humility because church and Christians are not God, right? And that's basically, I think, one of the lessons that we want to really keep in mind. Well, thank you so much, our listeners. We are so grateful to have you with us and uh, we will continue on this journey in the next episode. This has been Centering the Asian American Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss race and grace. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.